Good morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. We see some visitors here, some nearby, some as far away as Africa. Uh, we're glad to have the Andy and Beverly with us today worshiping. Uh, good. We pray for you often. We're glad to see you here. Glad to see family here worshiping with their family uh, today and hope you'll come tonight. We have communion service at 5 o'clock. Uh, the communion table is open to all who profess Christ as their Savior and are in good standing in, a, in an evangelical church. And so bring your family and friends and worship tonight at 5 o'clock. No prayer meeting this week. Uh, we'll, we'll resume the next week. All adult new Sunday school classes will be, begin January the 7th. Well, not a lot of announcements today. Hope you uh, humble your hearts and praise the Savior and are encouraged by Him today. Let's prepare our hearts to worship. We have the great privilege of worshiping this morning. We're called to worship from God's Word. It's found in your bulletin, Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Oh, 
Let's lift up our voices to praise to God. Let's pray, pray together. Our Father, you are in the Lord Jesus, King and Head of the Church. Our church is gathered together today out of the world but into the kingdom of your dear Son. We're here to sing praises to you because you're worthy. We're here to give you our prayers because you're powerful and good and wise. We're here to listen to your word because your word is able to bring light and life to our lives. We're here to celebrate that you so loved the world that you gave your only son to be our savior. That just like you told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And the angels gave you glory and are seeking you, wise men are. And as worthy as you are to worship, we cannot do it alone. Our hearts are cold. So open the eyes of our heart that we might see the glory of Christ. Open our ears, unstop them, that we might hear the gospel, the glad tidings of good news. Free our wills that we may serve you joyfully, not seeing your commandments as burdensome. And by your spirit, through your word, make us today a little bit more like Jesus. And we pray in the name of our Savior who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The Apostles' Creed is found in your bulletin. It's really interesting when you, can, when you distill what the Christian church has professed through the ages. There's a whole lot that's left out, but there's significance in what is included. And in this brief statement of faith, it makes a statement that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. The incarnation was a miracle, and we're still amazed by it. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence you don't come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our first hymn is a Christmas hymn that we don't sing a lot, but it has a beautiful tune and great words. Listen carefully as you sing. Lift up your hearts and your heads. Psalm, uh, Psalm. hymn number 198.
Please be seated. Our scripture lesson reading today is from James chapter 4, 1 through 10, and then we'll have our morning prayer. James is uh, known for putting faith into action, and this is no different. It's very convicting as well. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He calls to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to the Lord. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter in the morning and your joy in the gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That is God's word. Let's go to the Lord in our morning prayer. And before we pray, I don't know about Ben or anybody else who leads in worship, but doing the morning prayer is a very humbling uh, convicting uh, thing to do. It's humbling because uh, it reveals that you are not the person of prayer that you ought to be. It's convicting because you're bringing all of these petitions and prayers for you to the Lord on glory. And it's easy to fall into the same old words and the same old phrases or to pray to be uh, eloquent and heard by men. One of the things that I like to do when I lead us in prayer, which is, is not often Ben usually does this part, is I like to do what I do in my own life so often, is take the Lord's Prayer and take the skeleton of it and just pray through it. And so let's do that today. Our Father, who art in heaven, we thank you that we are your children, that you have brought us into your family, you have adopted us, we are no longer orphans. We're no longer enemies, but we're, we're friends. We have the great privilege to call you Abba, Father, to understand that when we come to you, you're a good God. You know how to give good gifts to your children. You will not give us a serpent when we ask for a fish, or you will not give us a stone when we ask for bread. And it's our great privilege to come to you because, because you are a father who is never going to turn your children away. We pray that you'd help us to grow to be more like your Son in heaven, that sanctification might take root in our heart, that we might kill sin and live unto righteousness. We pray that your name would be honored. Your name is you. What you're called is who you are. You are Yahweh, the God that is with us forever. I am who I am. And people who run to you run to a strong tower. Those who call out to you you're, you're, will never turn away silent. We thank you for your kingdom. We pray that it might come. It might come, as Philippians says, that one day every knee should bow 
and every tongue could confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that the kingdom doesn't come by uh, physical means or mighty armies or swords loud clashing as the hymns say. But the kingdom comes by the gospel being preached to, through preachers and missionaries and Sunday school teachers that the gospel subdues the hearts of your enemies and turns them into your friends. And so we do pray for our missionaries around the world that they'd be encouraged. And even tomorrow as they celebrate maybe Christmas away from their family that you remind them of the great blessing it is to serve you even in faraway lands. We thank you that Andy and Bev are here with us for a while and pray that you'd bless their, their visit with their families and bless them and encourage them as they look forward to going back. We pray that your will would be done. Uh, we know that that doesn't mean your will, your decree, but your moral will. We pray that your will would be followed by our people in our church and in our land. We long to live in a day and in a place where people worship you properly and not in vain, where your day is honored and not frittered away in foolishness. We long for a day when your name is not used in blasphemous, vain ways. We long for a day when the family is together and people honor those in authority over them. We long for a day when people are at peace and don't have murder and, and resentment in their hearts. We long for a day when truth is spoken in love. And we long for that day when people are content with what they have and aren't envious. And make that day to come soon in our hearts, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've promised to give us our daily bread. We thank you that you have in the past. You have met our needs and beyond that given us blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace. You have filled our cup to overflowing. Help that uh, promise that you'd give us our daily bread to work in our hearts, real contentment with what you do give us. Help it to root out envy and jealousy. Help it to build up in our hearts trust that we might not worry about tomorrow because today has enough trouble of its own. And help us to forgive as you have forgiven us, to forgive as we've been forgiven. And Father, we have borne some terrible hurts. Uh, we know of people who've been wounded badly. We know of wrong and injustice, but we pray that we would remember that vengeance is yours, that you would not allow us to hold grudges, that you would not let us keep score and harbor resentment and hate in our heart and surely not let it turn into to action. Uh, we do pray that you would lead us not into temptation. Uh, we know that you're sovereign, you're sovereign over all. And even in the realm of temptation, although you don't tempt, you allow us to be tempted but never above what we're able, but with a temptation, you'll provide a way out. And we know that uh, the devil himself is not omnipresent. He's not like you. We're not dualists. He can only be one time, one place at a time. But we pray that you'd keep the evil one and even his adversaries, his allies that are against us away from us even today. And we pray for those who have needs in our church today. We pray for those who are sick and lonely, those who are discouraged and depressed, those who are alone, and pray that you'd meet their needs in Christ Jesus. We praise you because yours is a power, and yours is a kingdom, and it's forever and ever. Amen. Let's continue our worship as we sing, God, be merciful to me, 486.
O Lord, you have loved us and called us out of sin into life in our Lord Jesus Christ. What could we give to reflect what gratitude fills our hearts for all that you have done? And yet we come to give. So bless these gifts from our hands that certainly have come first from yours. Use them for the good of your kingdom, the glory of the name of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that our ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes as we read and hear your holy word. Holy Spirit, please give me the physical strength and the spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, humility, love, and clarity. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, that your work for us did not end at the resurrection and ascension, but that you live to intercede for us. So come now and do your prophetic work. Reveal to us by your word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. Go to the end of the New Testament. Go back three. Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. Um, these minor prophets are, are good for short sermon series, and that's the main reason we're in Haggai, uh, because I'll be with you this morning and next Sunday morning, and Haggai splits pretty evenly into two. So don't try to find the secret Christmas meaning. There is none. Uh, we're just in Haggai because uh, it works, and the Lord's put it here for our consideration. Hear from Haggai chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. 
I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and now the proclamation of his holy word. Does preaching actually do anything? Does preaching actually do anything? Paul tells us in one of his epistles that he wonders how people will believe on the gospel if they haven't heard the gospel, and he wonders how they will hear the gospel if somebody doesn't go and preach to them the gospel. The Second Helvetic Confession, one of the great Reformation confessions, uh, states rather clearly that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Does preaching actually do anything, or are we just kind of learning a little bit right now, and we'll go off into our day and Hopefully our brains are a little fuller than they were before we arrived. Does preaching actually do anything? Haggai chapter 1 says preaching does a lot. The first chapter of Haggai is a remarkable story of how the Lord uses the ministry of the Word of God to reverse the entire heart attitude of his remnant people. They had fallen into idolatry, which we will see. But by the ministry of Haggai, the Lord turned their hearts back toward right worship. The events here in Haggai chapter 1 take place about 2,500 years ago, in around 520 B.C., in the city of Jerusalem. But in order for us to understand what's going on even that long ago, we have to go back a little further than that. And you'll remember in the history of God's people that they had been continually rebellious toward him, continually forsaking uh, the, the ways that he had given them to seek him. Um, over many generations, the Lord promised that if they continued to forsake him, he would send enemy nations in and bring judgment upon his people. And uh, so somewhere in the, the 700s BC, we saw the first uh, exile of God's people by Assyria, the destruction of of the first part of the nation, and about a hundred years before Haggai chapter 1, the last remaining Israelites in the land were attacked by King Nebuchadnezzar, their temple was brought down to the ground, and they themselves were carted off into exile in Babylon. And in God's providence, after about 50 to 60 to 70 years of being in exile, the Persians conquered Babylon. Some of you are stretching really hard to get back into the old ancient world history you learned a long time ago. That's okay. Um, you'll remember that a man named Cyrus came to power in Persia. And at the beginning of Ezra chapter 1, we're given a description of how God used him in the life of his people. Remember, the people are in what's now Persia, outside of the promised land, away from Jerusalem, and Ezra chapter 1 records, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. And so about 50,000 Israelites there in Persia, in Babylon, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, took on the journey of going back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild what had been torn down nearly a hundred years before. You can go read this afternoon in Ezra 1, 2, and 3 and see how the people brought all of their um, acquired wealth with them into the land. And, and they, they put their money and their resources and their time and their energy to work rebuilding the temple of God. And we need to have the right understanding of the people in our minds as we come to Haggai chapter 1. Things were good. This is a good season. Not an easy season in the life of God's people, but a good season. The 50,000 that returned are what the Bible calls in many, many places, and even here in verse 12, the remnant of the people. 50,000 wasn't very much compared to how big Israel had been at one point. 50,000 people, a small group of faithful ones whom the Lord had promised to bless as they returned to the land to be about his work again. Plenty of Israelites would have chosen to stay in Babylon to keep their nice houses and their good jobs. But this small group, this remnant, comes back. And their return shows a special devotion to the Lord. One commentator summarizes it by writing this. These people were characterized by affection and zeal for God's house. And this is a great thing in his sight. Not only so, but in pursuit of that object, they had voluntarily turned away from all the magnificence and grandeur and luxury of Babylon. They had faced trials and difficulties in crossing the intervening territory, and the result of all their efforts and hardships was but to bring them to a desolated land and a ruined city. He says, there was nothing to attract them to that land and to that city except the fact that it was God's. These are good people, good, believing Jewish people. They trusted the Lord, and they wanted to go back and rebuild what had been torn down by their enemies. They wanted to go back and, and put together that central structure of God's worship, the great temple of Solomon. And you may not be surprised to know that rebuilding the temple there in Jerusalem was not the easiest task Ezra chapter 4 particularly records two specific um, oppositions that they faced. First was the people in the land surrounding Jerusalem. They didn't want Israel to become a world power again. They discouraged them. It records in Ezra chapter 4, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. But maybe even more significant than the people around there, back in Persia, Cyrus died. And a new king arose and replaced the decree of Cyrus with a new one so that it records at the end of Ezra chapter 4, the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Which, if you're paying attention, brings us up to right where we are in Haggai chapter 1, the second 
year of the reign of Darius in Persia. Nearly 20 years have passed since the temple rebuilding was brought to a halt. And the Lord calls on Haggai to come preach a sermon. Most of us will hope for a better biography than Haggai. The only time he's mentioned in all of Scripture is this four-month period in this teeny-tiny little book, and he preaches one sermon, and God does all the work. It's a rather remarkable testimony, to be honest. We can all hope for something like this. This is the way we're going to take the text. We're just looking at two big points to hang our hats on. First is Haggai's sermon, and second is the people's response. What is it that God sent his servant to say to the people in this particular situation. And before we get into it, I want to just preface by saying it's a hard sermon. They didn't walk away from the sermon feeling good about themselves, but it was something they needed to hear. Look at the beginning of it there in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Here's our first glimpse at what's been going on the 20 years that have passed in Jerusalem. The people have decided, no, no, it's not time yet for us to continue rebuilding the temple. This was their prime directive. Go back to you know, the beginning of Ezra chapter 1. It's the whole reason that God brought Cyrus into power and declared that the people should go back so that the Lord might be acknowledged as the true and living God as his temple is rebuilt in the land of promise to his people. This was the only thing they should have been about. And they say, eh, we don't think it's time. Why? What's going on in the life of these people? Look back down, verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? It's important to know that it wasn't customary for the people to live and build paneled houses. Such structures were signs and um, they pointed to wealth and, and power. And so there was even a hint of sarcasm in Haggai's writings here. Oh, Oh, it's not time to rebuild the Lord's house, is it? But you have time to go and build your big fancy houses. Really? He's chiding them. He's, he's pushing on them. As the years have gone by, the originally well-intentioned Israelites have become caught up in their own affairs, seeking after the, the, the construction of their own houses. They've let their original prime directive fall by the wayside, and they become concerned with their own comfort and their own homes, such that when the time comes, they go, ah, it's not time yet for us to go and be about the Lord's work. They were making excuses. And as all of you parents know, excuses are a sign of guilt, aren't they? Jim Boyce says, here was their guilt, and excuses were being made. How different, really, are these post-exilic Israelites from well-intentioned Christians today? 
at a point, these dear people were zealous. They left Babylon, the comforts of that new home, and they, they got on the road and they went to a desolate place, to a city that had been demolished and never repaired. They went to rebuild, and yet over time, they've become less zealous, less interested in the work of the Lord, now full of excuses. It's not time to rebuild the Lord's temple. We have to take care of our own temples first. Does that describe your own heart? You know, if we're honest, I, I want to worship the Lord, and I want to plan to worship Him, but things keep getting in the way. You know, Lord's Day worship and rest, private devotional readings and, and, and time in prayer before the Lord and our own leading of our families and regular devotions and worship in our homes. How many things get in the way of even just these basic, simple things? Where on the one hand, we will say, yes, I want to be in God's house as often as I can. And yes, I want to be in the Word every morning. This is my desire. And yes, I want to lead my children in studying the Scriptures and clinging to Christ. But there's just so much else to do. Isn't this the life that we lead? Isn't this the life of a modern-day Christian, just the same as those in Haggai's day? That we have so many excuses for the things that we will say we know we need. And yet we will set them aside. It's not time yet to be about these things. I'm too busy. I'll wait till I get more space and more money. There's just so much to do. The Israelites are saying that their home and their family and their ease and their own comfort are more important than the things that have to do with the kingdom of God. Are you saying the same thing? Jim Boyce, in his commentary on, on the Minor Prophets, drives in a little further on this point. He says that failure for them to proceed with the temple was the result of inverted priorities. So track it with them. that They had gone into the kingdom with their main goal being to build God's temple, and then over time, sure, to take care of themselves. But as these two decades have passed, do you see what has happened? Their priorities have been inverted, and now their primary task is to take care of themselves, and one day maybe they'll have time for God's house. Inverted priorities. Boyce says, in the final analysis, all inverted priorities are idolatry. Do you see why? Because we take God and we put him under things that we think are better. And now these are our idols. And these are the things that we worship and that we bow down to and we give our lives to. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? As he describes the depravity of mankind, what's that one scathing indictment he begins with? They have exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of the thing created. That's what they've done in Jerusalem in the time of Haggai. They have exchanged the worship of God and the rebuilding of his temple and commitment to his priorities. They have exchanged it for their own things and their own methods and their own comfort. 
The second point that Haggai makes in his sermon is in verse 6. Look at it. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Can you sense the frustration that he's describing? I mean, gentlemen, imagine a hard, difficult planting season that's followed by just a very minuscule harvest. Have you ever been so hungry, so thirsty, and yet it can never be satisfied? Have you ever had that chilling sense of of bone cold that no amount of sweaters and blankets can dispel? Do you sometimes feel like you're just working to throw your money into a bag full of holes? You see, they, like some of us, are always working, always striving, always toiling, and yet never finding satisfaction. Such a troublesome season of life they find themselves in. Perhaps, maybe there was a bit of comfort brought to them when the Lord explains why they're in this season. Move down to verse 9. He explains what's going on. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's the answer. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. This is an extension of their inverted priorities, and it's an extension of their idolatry. Why? Why does life feel so fruitless? The Lord says, because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own business. The hardship that has fallen on them is described here, in, in, especially in 10 and 11, in terms that would have been familiar to good Israelites. Go back again in your mind to the history of Israel. After Israel had been brought out of Egypt by the work of Moses, after they'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses sits them down just before they're entering into the land flowing with milk and honey, which, by the way, is the same land that the people in Haggai have just come back to. Just before they go into the land for the first time, the whole book of Deuteronomy, Moses sits them down and preaches that sermon, which is a recitation of all the stipulations that the Lord has given to them. It's a recitation of all the blessings that will come if they're faithful to the Lord and a reminder of all the cursings that will come if they're disloyal to him. And, and in verses 10 and 11, we see echoes of the curses of Deuteronomy. What will happen if the people go into the land and forsake the Lord? Listen, just a couple of things out of Deuteronomy. It, 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 it's, it's the precursor to the echo here in Haggai 1. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. And there's plenty of others you can go and read later, especially into Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and 29. You'll see the blessings and curses that are promised and how they're reflected here. And what has happened to the people returned to Jerusalem. The very things that Moses threatened against faithlessness back then, 
are what the Lord describes here in Haggai 1. And one commentator summarizes it like this. This repetition of covenant curses points to the magnitude of the error of Haggai's generation. It is not merely a case of misplaced priorities. Rather, by pursuing their own houses, they have forsaken God's covenant. It's not just that, that they, you know, they miss a worship service once in a while, or they skip prayer meeting too much, or, or that they don't read their Bibles every day of the week. They have left the God they used to claim to love. They have forsaken the God that knows them. Idolatry leads to frustration. It leads to a life that is upside down and mixed up and reversed from the way it's supposed to be. And isn't this the experience of so many modern-day Christians? Isn't this the experience that you feel more often than we care to admit? That the frustrated life, I'm a member of a church, and I try to go to worship on a regular basis, and I try to observe the Lord's Day, and, 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 and most weeks I try to pray and read my Bible, and I send my kids to Sunday school, so why do I feel so empty all the time? Because, beloved, that in your heart, you do not put the Lord first. That is why you feel this. You feel not the comfort of the gospel because you search for comfort in everything else. You feel not the comfort of Christ because you seek comfort in the world. And it shows in our treatment of the ordinances that God has given to us. Track, if you will. The people refuse to return to building the temple. The temple is the way that God related to his people then. It was the way that they could draw near to him. It was the way to seek him. What's the parallel in our own New Testament age? The ordinances that God has given are his worship and the word and prayer, and the sacraments? And where do these things find themselves in your own heart and life? What's your heart connection to these things? Their idolatry is seen in the neglect of the temple. Yours is seen in the neglect of the paths that the Lord has promised to bless. Your hearts prefer the wealth of Babylon over the temple of God's worship. This is why we feel the way we do. This is why we feel like the motions of religion that we engage in are empty and useless. Because, friends, the things that God has given to us are useless unless our hearts are in them. There is blessing found here right now for those who come by faith believing, for those who trust the Lord to work, for those who give themselves to the ways that he has promised to bless. And it's in the middle of this indictment that Haggai gives imperatives to his fickle listeners. Two things. He says, one, consider your ways. It's verse 7. It's also in verse 5, but verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You know, look at your ways. Look at your life. Look at your habits. What's your life look like? Does it line up with, with what Haggai has described here? You know, pray 
as you consider and, and ask the Lord with the psalmist from 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Consider in the first place as you pray this, if you know God at all, right? What's the point of considering your state before him if you don't know him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the only way to know the true and living God is to know the one whom God has sent to save your soul from hell and damnation, to save your soul from the sin that you have worked, to trust that the Lord Jesus Christ has lived for your righteousness and died for your sin and that he lives to intercede for you. There is only salvation in him, and you will not know God apart from him. But secondly, consider, does your heart belong to him really? Do you love him and cling to him? Do you seek after him? Do you forsake other things in order to run towards him? Consider your ways. But then secondly, verse 8, he tells them, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Get to work, essentially. There's something to do. There are ordinances to be about. There's worship to attend and prayers to make and the Bible to read. It's likely that the wood they used for their own paneled houses in those two decades was originally intended for the temple. And so the first sign of repentance in them is to go get more wood to build the temple back again. Notice the purpose of returning to such work. Half, second half of verse 8 that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It's not just so that we can have a place to worship, but it's so that the Lord might be pleased. It's the great purpose of our life, to glorify and enjoy Him. So consider your ways and get to work. This is, this is Haggai's sermon. And, and very briefly, I want us to look lastly at the response of the people. You know, how do you respond to a hard sermon like this? Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. End of verse 12, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the one hand, there is in here great encouragement for preachers that the Lord uses preaching to bring about change in the hearts of his people. That's a big thing here. But I want to leave us with two imperatives as we look at this text. You know, it's a hard sermon that he preached, and there's some hard things for us to consider about our own hearts. Do we love the Lord above all other things? What do we need to change in our lives so that we might seek after him more? But these very practical things that I hope the Holy Spirit will consider in your own heart with you are motivated by truth, not, not by simply trying to fix. Two truths that I want you to seek to believe and pray to believe that we see here at the end of this text. The first is this, see that God is at work. God is at work. See that God is at work and stand in awe of him and worship him. See that God is at work. You see, the people were in two decades of sin. And what happens at the end of this two decades? Verse 1, the word of the Lord came. The people didn't have to seek after God. He sought after them. 
It's the wonderful truth of the gospel message that you're dead in sin apart from Christ and He comes toward you. Stand in awe of the God who seeks sinners and brings them back to Himself. But do you also see that their obedience, that their whole response to the message is necessarily a response to God? They didn't respond just one day walking around going, oh, I think maybe today we'll rebuild. No, the Lord sends His Word and the people are motivated by the Spirit's work in it. This is not to say anything about verse 14 where it explicitly tells us that in all of their work and their response and their repentance, that the Lord stirred up their spirits to these ends. Isn't this what God has done for you in Christ? You never would have sought Him on your own. You never would have moved toward Him at all. We were all seeking ourselves, building our own paneled houses, and God came and drew us to Himself. We respond because of His enabling grace. See God at work. Worship Him because of it. Secondly, see that God is with His people. You know, what do you expect God to say? They've obeyed. You expect God to maybe say, okay, now that you've obeyed, I'll be with you. You know, I really should curse you, but I guess I'll hang out for a little bit longer. It's a very short word he speaks to them in verse 13. I am with you. One commentator writes it this way, the, the failed crops seem to say the Lord is against us, and the ruined temple seem to say the Lord is absent from us, but the Lord then assures them that He is with them. Friends, if you've been distant from God, fret not. If, if you feel disinclined from Him, do not be afraid. God is with His people. And if you feel that, that inclination towards Him, it's because of Him drawing you to Himself. He is with His people. We may in our, our, our natural senses expect Him to abandon us, but He never will. Stand in awe of our God. Trust Him. And may God help us. Amen. Heavenly Father, for the sake of Your Son, please send the Holy Spirit to write the truth of Your Word upon our hearts that we may not sin against You. We feel that tug towards the world, and we hate it. Draw us again to Christ the one who has saved us and keeps us, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, 196, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.
receive the Lord's benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.